Hello, Earnings Call listener. My name is Hadi Youssef. I run this earnings season podcast, but I also run the Borster Earnings Call mobile app, and that's what I wanted to quickly tell you about today. We've created a dedicated app for listening to earnings calls. What I mean by that is that we've basically created the Spotify for earnings calls. Our app lets you add any company to your watch list. You can download any earnings call to your phone. You can set notifications for specific companies for when a new call is available. You can also see the exact date of the earnings call. And if there is a company that isn't on our app yet, you can request a company within our app and we will promptly add it. Making earnings calls easy to access is something that I care a lot about. It's why I created this earnings season podcast. But obviously, we cannot add every single earnings call that gets published on this podcast, or else you'll be having hundreds of episodes every week. And so, we've created a dedicated app where you can go and pick and choose the exact earnings calls、uh, you're interested in. And what we post on this earnings season podcast are basically kind of the highlights or the most notable earnings calls. But in the show notes of this episode, I've included a video demonstration where I walk you through all the features that I just described for our app. And I also included the link to the App Store where you can go there and see the description of the app and the reviews. You know, I'm really proud of the feedback we've gotten from our users. And,、uh, you know, pleasing and satisfying our, our users and our customers is, is something that I、uh, take pride in. And, and as a team, we、uh, really pride ourselves on that. And so, I don't want to take more of your time and, and keep you from listening to the earnings calls you've selected today. So, without further ado, here is your earnings call. Good morning. My name is Krista, and I'll be your conference operator today. At this time, I would like to welcome everyone to the Walgreens Boots Alliance Incorporated second quarter 2019 earnings conference call. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise, and after the speaker's remarks, we will have a question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question during that time, please press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. And if you would like to withdraw your question, press the pound key. Thank you. I will now turn the call over to your host, Gerald, Gerald Gradwell, Senior Vice President of Investor Relations. Please go ahead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to our second quarter earnings call. I'm here today with Stephanie Bassina, our Executive Vice Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of Walgreens Boots Alliance, James Kehoe, our Global Chief Financial Officer, and Alec Gourlay, Co Chief Operating Officer of Walgreens Boots Alliance and President of Walgreens. Our prepared comments are a little longer than usual today, so you should be aware that to provide the customary time for your questions, our call is likely to run at least 15 minutes past our normal one hour. Before I hand you over to Stefano to make some opening comments, I will, as usual, take you through the legal safe harbor and cautionary declarations. Certain statements and projections of future results made in this presentation constitute forward looking statements that are based on our current market, competitive, and regulatory expectations and are subject to risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results to vary materially. Except to the extent required by the law, We undertake no obligation to update publicly any forward looking statement after this presentation, whether as a result of new information, future events, changes in assumptions, or otherwise. Please see our latest Form 10K for a discussion of risk factors as they relate to forward looking statements. In today's presentation, we will use certain non GAAP financial measures. 
We refer you to the appendix in the presentation materials available on our Investor Relations website for reconciliations to the most directly comparable GAAP financial measures and related information. You'll find a link to the webcast on our Investor Relations website at investor.walgreensbootsalliance.com. After this call, the presentation and webcast will be archived on the website for 12 months. I will now hand you over to Stephanie. Thank you, Gerald, and hello, everyone. I want to acknowledge up front that this has been a very disappointing quarter for us. There is nothing entirely new in what we have seen impact our business during the quarter. That said, a number of the trends we had been expecting and preparing for impacted us significantly more quickly than we had anticipated. We found ourselves facing a combination of increased reimbursement pressure in the quarter, lower generic deflation, lower brand inflation, and slower than anticipated benefits from our work to refresh and renew our retail offering, primarily in the U.S. Of course, the pharmacy trends are not only impacting our business, they are impacting the overall market, and we likely continue to do so over the coming months. Let me be clear, however. I am convinced that our existing strategic priorities are the right ones and will allow us to deliver sustainable growth into the future. Let me remind you of our four priorities. Accelerating the digitalization of our company, transforming and restructuring our retail offering, creating neighborhood health destination around the more modern pharmacy, and rolling out our transformational cost management program. We are making strong progress against these transformation priorities across multiple fronts. However, we now need to respond appropriately to the tougher environment we find ourselves in. We will build off our existing transformation priorities and we will reinforce and accelerate our actions. We are acting quickly to address select areas of operational weakness with a number of senior appointments, sourcing new talent with new ideas and new approaches to drive more rapid change in a number of areas of our business. We are also strengthening and refocusing our operational management to ensure increased focus on driving operational excellence. In recent months, we have brought in a new chief digital officer, a new global chief marketing officer, a new global chief supply chain officer, we have restructured entirely the organization of our brand's business. And since the quarter end, we have brought in a new global controller and chief accounting officer. We have reviewed our priorities and the business initiatives underway and have reworked our management plans in light of the more adverse environment. First and foremost, we are acknowledging the short-term headwinds we are facing and the limited time we have available to compensate for the impacts in the remainder of the year. As a result, 
We are reducing our guidance for fiscal 2019. James will talk to you about that in a moment. We believe the actions that we are taking will result in improved performance in 2020. Looking beyond that, we are convinced that our business model can deliver sustainable adjusted earning per share growth of mid to high single digits. I will now ask James to take you through the results and our updated guidance for the year. James? Thank you, Stefano, and good morning, everyone. On a constant currency basis, adjusted earnings per share declined 4.3% in the quarter, bringing our first half EPS growth to 3.6%. The results were much weaker than we had expected due to three key factors. As with our competitors, we are seeing continued reimbursement pressure and the opportunities to mitigate have reduced due to lower levels of generic deflation and lower brand inflation. The second key factor is volume. Our same store growth in the U.S. is trending below plan in both pharmacy and front of store. And lastly, consumer conditions in the U.K. remain challenging. We are also lapping a particularly strong second quarter last year when constant currency adjusted EPS increased 25.7%. We are clearly not pleased with this quarter's performance and we are taking immediate actions to improve operational performance and to reinforce and accelerate our existing transformation plans. Let's now look in more detail at the numbers. In the second quarter, sales increased 4.6%, including a currency headwind of 2.1%. On a constant currency basis, sales were up 6.7%, reflecting the acquisition of the Rite Aid stores. Organic sales growth was 2.5%. Adjusted operating income declined 10.4%, or 9.3% on a constant currency basis. The decline was mainly due to a weak quarter in Retail Pharmacy USA, which declined 11.9% year-on-year due to lower pharmacy margins and a decline in front-end comparable sales. Adjusted diluted earnings per share declined 5.4%, to $1.64, a decrease of 4.3% on a constant currency basis. This includes a 4.5 percentage point contribution from our share repurchase program. GAP operating income declined 23% in the quarter, including restructuring charges of $150 million as we ramp up the transformational cost management program, and the prior year adjustment of $113 million relating to Amerisource Bergen tax law changes. GAP EPS declined 8.3% to $1.24 per share. Before I move on to our divisional performance, let me briefly cover first half financial highlights. Sales increased 7.2%, including a currency headwind of 1.8%. On a constant currency basis, Sales were up 9%, reflecting the acquisition of the Rite Aid stores. Organic sales growth was 3.3%. Adjusted operating income declined 7.5%, or 6.6% on a constant currency basis, reflecting the negative impact of reimbursement pressure on U.S. pharmacy gross margins. 
comp sales declines in U.S. retail, and weak market conditions in the U.K. Adjusted EPS increased 3.6% on a constant currency basis. Gap earnings per share were up 12%, as the absence of prior year items related to U.S. tax law changes and impairment were partly offset by $179 million of pre-tax restructuring costs related to the Transformational Cost Management Program. Now, let's look at the performance of our divisions, starting with Retail Pharmacy USA. Sales advanced 7.3% in the quarter, reflecting the acquired Rite Aid stores and organic sales growth of 1.6%. Adjusted gross profit declined 3.5% in the quarter, reflecting declines in both pharmacy and retail. Gross margin declined 260 basis points, mostly due to pharmacy. Adjusted SG&A spend declined 0.6% versus prior year. And excluding Rite Aid, adjusted SG&A spend was 6.8% lower than the prior period. Continued cost-saving initiatives and the impact of a lower bonus accrual more than offset inflation and store labor investments. Adjusted SG&A was 17.7% of sales, an improvement of 140 basis points compared to the year-ago quarter. Adjusted operating income declined 11.9% in the quarter. Continued SG&A savings, procurement savings, and pharmacy volume growth were not sufficient to offset the unusually high year-on-year impact from reimbursement and underperformance in the front of store. This result included store and labor investments of $40 million in the quarter, equivalent to approximately 240 basis points of adjusted operating income. Now let's look in more detail at pharmacy. Total pharmacy sales increased 9.8%, reflecting the acquisition of the Rite Aid stores and organic growth of 4%. Second quarter market share was 22.3%, up approximately 90 basis points compared to last year, reflecting the acquired Rite Aid stores. Comp pharmacy sales increased 1.9%, and our central specialty business grew 28.7% year on year. The number of retail prescriptions filled on a 30-day adjusted basis, including immunizations, increased 6.4%, Comp prescriptions grew 1.8%, slightly behind the first quarter growth of 2%. Pharmacy gross profit declined versus prior year, as volume growth was more than offset by lower gross margin. The pharmacy market is very challenging right now, and we are seeing similar trends to our competitors. Reimbursement pressure has continued, and opportunities for mitigation are lower than we expected. The combination of this reimbursement pressure, lower levels of generic deflation, and lower brand inflation resulted in pharmacy margins that were worse than planned and 280 basis points below the same period last year. Also included here is a 110 basis point impact due to the faster growth of the lower margin specialty business. And as we looked at the quarter, The year-on-year reimbursement impact was exceptionally high, and we estimate an adverse timing impact of approximately 60 basis points. 
Turning next to our retail business, retail sales increased 1.3%, reflecting the sales contribution from the acquired Rite Aid stores. Comp retail sales declined 3.8% as we faced some headwinds during the quarter. We are lapping an exceptionally strong prior year cough cold flu season, and this accounted for 150 basis points of the year-on-year sales decline. Secondly, we continued to de-emphasize tobacco with an impact of around 125 basis points. And finally, we had a weak quarter in seasonal and gifting with a 70 basis points impact. And here, we clearly need to improve our range and execution. Retail gross profit declined in the quarter, with retail gross margin 90 basis points lower than prior year, predominantly due to short-term changes in promotional activity. But let me remind you that excluding Rite Aid, our retail gross margin has improved by approximately 290 basis points since 2015. That being said, while we are pleased with our long-term margin performance, We are clearly not satisfied with our recent front-of-store sales performance. Now, let me pass it to Alex, who will update you on our transformation priorities and explain the actions we're taking to address our current business challenges. Thank you, James. While external factors, including reimbursement pressure and a weaker cough, cold, and flu season impacted us in the quarter, we clearly need to improve our execution and speed of delivery. We have not moved quickly enough to address the changes in the market and as a result did not deliver the growth required to help mitigate the continued reimbursement pressure. With that context, let me share some of the actions we are focused on. Our overall transformation priorities are unchanged, but we are seeking to reinforce and accelerate our actions. As Stefano mentioned, we are accelerating the digitalization of our company transforming and restructuring our retail offering, creating neighborhood health destinations based around a more modern pharmacy, and rolling out our transformational cost management program. On cost management, we are continuing to make major strides and see more opportunities, which James will cover in more detail later. Overall, we recognize the importance of accelerating the transformation of our business, most significantly, to the customer. So let's look for a moment at some of the specific actions we are taking. Firstly, it's crystal clear that it all works only if we have the right talent, capabilities, and operational focus. To that end, we have recently executed a comprehensive reorganization of my senior leadership team. We have announced a new leadership structure which clearly delineates between development and delivery. This is allowing my senior executives to focus on driving operational excellence and delivering results in their specific area. We have also made changes to how we manage our strategic partnerships, increasing the focus and accountability for developing our healthcare and retail services, ensuring financial discipline, pace, accountability, and maximization of new profit streams. As Stefano mentioned, we have brought in a number of new senior executives to Walgreens Boots Alliance with specific skills and expertise. 
and they will work closely with my team to drive performance improvements. We are on track on digitalization. The Microsoft Teams are onboarded, they are physically present in our offices, and we have moved quickly to consolidate our internal digital teams to create a single team under an experienced chief digital officer. We have put in place new action plans for both pharmacy and retail. In pharmacy, we have created a dedicated accountable team to drive volume through our partnerships with payers in the marketplace. This will allow the rest of the team to focus on operational effectiveness in our core pharmacy business, delivering our vision of a modern pharmacy, driving efficiency, and maximizing opportunities through outcomes-based reimbursement. These new approaches will help us counteract reimbursement pressure. In retail, we recognize the need to concentrate our efforts where we know we can win. Right now, our execution is lagging where it needs to be. We will continue to accept revenue declines in low-margin categories where we do not see a winning future path. We invested some margin this quarter in categories we know drive footfall, and we're already starting to see the benefit of this investment in improved revenue and gross profit. We will concentrate our efforts, shifting resources, people, and dollars to our flagship brands, including Walgreens Healthcare Brands and Number 7, and our priority categories. A great example is health and wellness. It's a significant category with very attractive margins. We will step up the level of innovation and marketing support. We continue to be pleased with the progress we're making on our partnerships. In particular, we're working closely with the Kroger executive team to determine how best to unlock future growth and synergies. And the work we are doing on digitalization of our business will deliver an enhanced customer experience and the tools and analytics to drive customer loyalty. This builds on our existing highly successful customer-facing platforms, including our five-star rated 55 million downloaded app and our 85 million active balance reward members. We previously highlighted the very high customer retention rates we have delivered on the Rite Aid store optimization. These very favorable retention rates, which allow us to focus volume locally on fewer stores without reducing our geographic coverage, deliver greatly improved returns and have led to a decision to boost our store optimization program from 600 stores to approximately 750 stores. Parallel to this, we are undertaking a comprehensive review of Walgreens store networks to address specific underperforming stores. And as you know, we are testing a small store format and pending positive results, we anticipate building out this format over the coming years. More information will follow in the coming months. I'll hand you back to James now to update you on Retail Pharmacy International. Thank you, Alex. As usual, I'll report on the division's results in constant currency. Sales declined 1.2%, mainly due to a 1.3% decline in Boots UK in a challenging market. Adjusted operating income was down 2.1%, reflecting a 3.1% decline in Boots UK. While the quarter was helped by the positive impact of phasing in the UK, the trend has improved versus the first quarter. 
and the UK team are taking actions to further improve performance. UK comp pharmacy sales declined 1.5%, mainly due to lower hospital revenues and revenue per item. Boots UK comp retail sales declined 2.3%. The UK retail market remains challenging, but encouragingly, we held market share in the quarter. Alex will now talk you through our Boots UK action plans. Thank you, James. We're taking a balanced approach with our actions focused on both boosting revenue growth and creating a lean operating model. Firstly, we have taken decisive action to reduce our UK cost base. In February, we announced our intention to reduce our Nottingham Head Office personnel costs by around 20% to create a smaller and more agile support team. Our smart spending, smart organisation is advancing well. And a store portfolio review is underway, focusing on low-performing stores and opportunities for consolidation. In addition, we are looking closely at our pharmacy business to further improve efficiency and effectiveness. We continue also to strengthen the Boots leadership team with the appointment of a new Chief Operating Officer. And as mentioned on last quarter's earnings call, we have multiple initiatives underway to improve our revenue performance. We are refitting 24 beauty halls across the UK between now and the end of May, introducing Boots Beauty Specialists with an in-depth knowledge spanning all categories and brands. And we're significantly expanding our beauty offering by introducing more than 20 new on-trend brands nationwide over the next six months. Finally, a brief update on our international investments in China. Since the quarter end, in collaboration with our partner, Guara, we opened our first pilot pharmacy in Shanghai, combining traditional Chinese medicine and skincare with well-known international brands. Back to James. Turning now to the pharmaceutical wholesale division, which we'll also discuss in constant currency, the division delivered another solid quarter, with sales up 9.1%, mainly due to growth in emerging markets, but also aided by a customer contract change in the UK, which contributed 2.1% of revenue growth. Adjusted operating income increased 3%, with sales growth and an improvement in SG&A as a percentage of sales, more than offsetting gross margin pressure. Turning next to cash flow. Operating cash flow was $1.2 billion in the first half. Free cash flow was $401 million. This was impacted by headwinds of $1 billion, including increased cash tax payments of $465 million, mainly as a result of U.S. tax reform, legal settlements of $276 million, and a once-off working capital benefit of $233 million in the prior year. Working capital days improved year on year, but the first half free cash flow reflects approximately $750 million of working capital increases, primarily due to higher sales and the timing of receipts. Cash capital investment was $793 million in the first half, $128 million higher than prior year, due to the impact of Rite Aid store conversions. Turning now to our guidance for the year, in light of the first half performance 
and our expectations for a challenging second half, we are revising our full year guidance for fiscal year 2019. We now expect adjusted EPS to be roughly flat on a constant currency basis. However, given the normal level of volatility in a business of this size, realistically, you should expect a range of plus or minus 2%. The downward revision considers the following key changes. We anticipate gross margins to remain under pressure in the US in the second half. Reimbursement pressure is unlikely to improve in the short term, and it will take time for our complete mitigation plans to kick in. In terms of volume, our US pharmacy and US retail performance has been below plan in the first half of the year. And while we are taking decisive actions in the UK, market conditions remain weak, and we have reflected this in our revised guidance. Given the revised full-year EPS outlook, the estimated bonus payout for the year has been substantially reduced. And while our transformational cost management program is very much on track, the contribution to fiscal year 19 results was assumed when we provided guidance in December 2018. Finally, let me provide you with some supporting guidance assumptions. As you look forward to the second half, please remember that we have now lapped Rite Aid, and we will continue to see adverse reimbursement pressure impacting the revenue line. Currencies have an adverse EPS impact of approximately $0.04 cents versus prior year, unchanged versus our guidance at the beginning of the year. We now project a full-year tax rate of 16 to 17%. The more favorable outlook reflects non-recurring discrete benefits and changes in our geographical mix of earnings. And we project full-year share repurchases of $3.8 billion compared to $3 billion guidance at the beginning of the year. This contributes 4.5% to EPS growth. Turning to our long-term business model, firstly, we believe the business model is well-positioned to deliver sustainable, constant currency, adjusted EPS growth well into the future. We have good line of sight to levers to counteract reimbursement pressure, predictable volume growth, and excellence in cost management will be key. And this requires us to execute strongly against our existing transformation priorities. Volume growth will be underpinned by delivering improved value for both payers and consumers. We absolutely must drive a renewed focus on operational excellence, whether it be adherence, patient satisfaction, or management of our offering in the front of store. And we will see the benefits of our digitalization program with more frequent enhancements to our customer offer over the course of the coming months and years. Finally, in the UK, we expect our store and brand investments to begin to bear fruit as we exit 2019. Importantly, by 2022, we anticipate annual savings in excess of $1.5 billion from our transformational cost management program. 
And while a program of this magnitude is never easy, we do have good visibility on what needs to be done and strong commitment from the leadership team to get it done. Beyond 2022, we expect a rising contribution from partnerships. However, until then, our EPS growth model is not dependent on a material ramp-up of any of the existing partnerships. In fact, we are making significant investments in the short and medium term to drive long-term earnings upside. And long-term, we do believe that healthcare and retail services will provide us with attractive returns and substantial new sources of income. Let me focus now on the Transformational Cost Management Program. Last quarter, we launched the program targeting annual savings in excess of $1 billion. We also told you that we needed to complete a 16-week assessment phase. We are now three months in, and while we are not fully complete, we do have a much deeper understanding of the areas of potential savings. Given what we have seen to date, we are increasing our annual cost-saving targets to at least $1.5 billion. Smart spending is progressing well. We have completed our benchmarking for select spend categories. For example, our benchmarks indicate that our consultant and supply costs are second quartile, while our contractor, events, technology, and travel spend are all above the median of the peer set. This shows the granularity we're operating at and the potential we see to reduce costs. Moving on to smart organization. As a reminder, in the first quarter, we announced and implemented reorganizations and store closure initiatives to right-size operations in Chile and Mexico. And we launched an optimization initiative in our pharmaceutical wholesale division. We continue to move quickly, and we took further decisive steps in the second quarter. As mentioned earlier, we announced a 20% reduction of the Boots UK central workforce, and the reduction should be largely complete by the end of the fiscal year. On the 21st of March, we announced a new field management structure in the US. The new organization combines the previously separate Walgreens and Rite Aid store management teams, and we expect the implementation to be completed by the beginning of June. The final bucket is digitalization. We just completed a detailed review of our global IT spend, and we are very encouraged by the findings. We see opportunity to reduce our annual IT cash spend by $500 million to $600 million, almost equally split between OPEX and CAPEX. This represents a reduction of approximately 25 to 30% versus the baseline costs, so it is a significant opportunity. In the short term, we plan to selectively invest part of the savings to build out new customer digital propositions. However, we will expect each project to drive incremental value and benefits, thus creating a virtuous cycle. As we look forward to 2020 and beyond, we see improved operational EPS performance. Over the long term, 
we are comfortable that our growth model can deliver mid to high single digit adjusted EPS growth in constant currencies. One call out on fiscal 2020. We do anticipate growth from operations. However, adjusted EPS in constant currency is expected to be broadly flat due to the reduction in bonus payments in 2019. As we built out our long-term business model, we made the following assumptions, which you may find helpful. We assume share repurchases of $1.7 billion per year, contributing approximately 2.5% to EPS growth. However, this is partly offset by tax rate, which is expected to increase from 16 to 17% in 2019 to over 18% by 2022, and creating a headwind of 50 to 100 basis points, depending on the year. In summary, we have reworked our business plans to accelerate and boost our existing transformation priorities. And while there may be quarterly fluctuations along the way, these plans should allow us to return to long-term adjusted EPS growth. I will now hand you back to Stefano. Thank you, James. As I said at the start, this has been a disappointing quarter. And I am equally disappointed that we had to reduce our full year guidance. However, we need to acknowledge the short-term headwinds we are facing. And while we are not the only company that has been impacted by the marked change in the environment, that's not an excuse. What is important now is that we respond quickly to ensure we return to growth as soon as possible. This quarter has focused the minds of the entire team on the need to allocate resources to where they will have the greatest impact, both today and in the future. Importantly, I am convinced that our existing strategic priorities are the right ones, and our multi-year transformation program will allow us to deliver sustainable, profitable growth. However, we have and will continue to reinforce and accelerate our actions to respond appropriately to the tougher environment we find ourselves in. Of course, in addition, from time to time, we have the opportunity for specific initiatives to rebase our costs, often prompted by new technologies, practices, or structures. You have heard many examples from Alex and James, and we have significantly increased the goal for our transformation cost management program. We remain a global business, delivering billions of dollars in earnings and billions of dollars in cash flow, and generating real value for our shareholders, while being a huge force for good in the communities we serve and society as a whole. Day in and day out, we continue, directly or indirectly, to be a core and vital part of the lives of a significant percentage of the world's population. Through a presence and reach into the very heart of communities across the world. We are not complacent. 
we must continue to evolve and innovate to thrive. And as a management team, we are more focused than ever on delivering operational and financial growth and value for our owners. I can assure you, there is innovation throughout our business, internally and outward facing, within our own teams and in a wide range of partnerships. There are innovations in how we work, in our products and services, in how we interact with and serve our customers, both retail and commercial. So, despite the disappointment of the quarter under review and the impact that it will have on the year as a whole, I remain confident that in future we can return to reliable, mid-to-high single-digit earning per share's growth from our businesses. And I remain committed to and confident of delivering a real value for our customers, the communities we serve, my colleagues, and most importantly, my fellow shareholders looking forward. Thank you. Now we will take your questions. And if you would like to ask a question, please press star followed by the number one on your telephone keypad. Your first question comes from the line of John Heindockel from Guggenheim Securities. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Hey, Alex, I wanted to ask um, the, uh, the, the um, reorganization in the U.S., right, that you guys just announced, um, magnitude of savings, and then how do you guard against, right, you talk about operational excellence, sort of guarding against doing that or, uh, reorg uh, in the current environment uh, without disrupting the business further? Hi, morning, John. Uh, it's Alec here. Yeah, yeah. We we've uh, we've really reorganised the top of the organisation to separate the develop and deliver. Uh, and in the deliver stage, we've got really three key roles now. One is driving the very important core business of pharmacy and front end sales. There's there's no changes there apart from driving that uh, more directly. Uh, and secondly, to look at future profit streams in areas like healthcare services the healthcare hub uh, uh, project, and also uh, the front end in terms of really finding new models to drive the front end or partnerships with Kroger, Birchbox, uh, and Sprint. Uh, these are really uh, focus areas. In terms of protecting the customer, you know, we continue to move uh, our money and our focus from the old model to the new model. That's been the trend for the last three, four, five years. Uh, and that's what we continue to do. So along with the savings, there will be reinvestment into these new areas of growth. And then James will cover the reinvestment in a second to, to finish off the question. But we are very, very focused on the customer. We're very focused on end-to-end -end improvement of our operational execution. And, uh, and that's why we've reorganized along with opening up the opportunity to invest more in the future models. In terms of investment, James, maybe you can pick up the the cost and investment point? Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, as you look forward, and, um, you know, we're quite clear on where we're targeting in excess of $1.5 billion of savings. Bear in mind, um, you know, you have inflation that offsets some of that. But the key one here is, are we investing for the future? And the way we've defined the program in general is we want to save, to invest, to grow. And the way we measure success in the program is, we want to take the cost down and be the leanest operator in the industry. That's number one. 
But secondly is, as we exit and execute against the program, we want to see top-line benefits coming from this. So there's one number I'm going to give you, and I think it will concentrate your attention on, the, on the, both the achievability of the targets and our determination to drive a successful business longer term. We will invest approximately $1 billion over the next three years in a combination of operating expense and capital. Approximately 80% is operating expense. So think about it for a minute. In one year, we'll be putting in $300 million to boost the partnerships and to boost our capabilities on digitalization of the company. So we're not going to starve the business for the sake of hitting a Costco. That's point number one. Point number two is more important is each digital investment and each partnership has to stand on its own merits. We expect a, a, an attractive return and we expect long-term significant pools of income. And if you like, um, the plan is, is, is on one side conservative because we've put in the money to, to drive the partnerships and digitalization, and we haven't fully built in the benefits of the partnerships flowing through. So if you like, the plan represents an option on the, uh, on the partnerships. And, okay, thank uh, you very much. Stefano, Stefano here. Uh, maybe you remember that I have always said that we had different waves of savings. And of course, uh, these waves uh, had to be enabled uh, by what we were doing uh, in the company. So it's not, uh, it's not a surprise that uh, uh, now we can announce a, a big program of savings, and maybe a little bigger than we were thinking initially, but uh, uh, still, uh, uh, even initially, we were thinking of something uh, uh, substantial. And this is possible because we have uh, saved, but also invested in the past. And the reason why you don't see uh, the uh, uh, really the contribution of all the joint ventures that we have done is, be that, uh, is because uh, from one side uh, we have some benefits, on the other side we continue to invest in these joint ventures, and so you don't see the benefit for the time being, uh, but uh, uh, this uh, investment will mature and uh, we will have at a certain time a substantial contribution from these partnerships, but rest assured that uh, we continue to invest and we will not starve the business. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Ricky Goldwasser from Morgan Stanley. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Yeah, hi. Good morning. So a um, question focused on the reimbursement rate cuts that you highlighted. Um, can you give us some sense of whether the rate cuts are coming from specific payers or PBMs, or are you seeing them um, across the board? And really kind of like the question aims it, sh should we expect um, an acceleration in the pressure for the remaining of fiscal year 19, or is the run rate that we're seeing for the quarter what we should model uh, for the rest of the year? And then the follow-up question to that is, um, when we think about all the changes that are coming up, in U.S. healthcare, um, the proposed rebate rule uh, on Part D um, is a pretty significant one. So how did you factor that one in when you think about uh, 2020 and your comments around operating income growth um, in 2020? Hi, Ricky. It's Alec here. I think there's, there's two, two sets of things you've asked. So I'll give you uh, where we are 
as we look forward with uh, reimbursement pressure. I think, as James said in his prepared remarks, this is a very heavy uh, quarter uh, for reimbursement pressure, and, uh, and we, we expect that to be uh, not the normal going forward. And I think he also said that uh, you know uh, the FEP, uh, for example, especially which was 110 basis points of, of, the, of the reduction, clearly that's an anniversary out as well. So there's timing, and then there's the FEP, and then there's the underlying reimbursement pressure. So I think that third number is the one, you know, that uh, that, that uh, is the real uh, underlying uh, trend going forward. Again, there's always uh, contracts that start and end on Jan 1st, uh, particularly MedD. Uh, and, uh, and again, we didn't see really much difference to the trends we spoke about before in MedD. They are really as we saw before. Uh, going to the second question uh, on uh, the safe harbour uh, and the changes in the government, it's really early on. We, we truly believe in transparency and we really believe in reducing out-of-pocket uh, costs for drugs for patients across America, that we, we support that really from uh, from day one, uh, and therefore, you know, we 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 are working hard with other partners in the marketplace to understand how we can bring that forward with the government. Uh, and clearly, uh, we we don't know yet what that really means for any players in the marketplace. But we are working hard to to innovate and to work with other partners, and we'll give you an update as soon as we understand better the rules as they emerge from the government. Yeah, maybe, Ricky, if I could add a couple of um, just facts to that. So what Alex says is, is correct. You know, if you like, if you're thinking about your modeling, Q3 at approximately 37% of, of the entire year's reimbursement impact. Q2, sorry. Had the entire 37% versus a 25% expected run rate, so it was exceptionally high. So I think as you look forward to the second half, the reimbursement, reimbursement pressure will subside because there's a skew to the first half. The, the impact of the FEP contract is material as well because year-to-date is around 140, 150 basis points. The specialty business will still grow very quickly, but the negative impact will tail off down to 30 basis points. So there will be a quite material change in the trajectory of the gross margin change year on year. And then secondly, as you, as you look into next year, um, we, we believe we've planned our reimbursement levels roughly similar to what we've seen over the past couple of years. And I think, you know, individual quarters will always be extremely volatile and rocky. But over a longer term, while reimbursement is a bit over the trend rate this year, we have planned similar levels going forward. But as I said, as we won't be we won't have this FEP contract next year. Um, one big thing that did hit us this year and, and is still hitting us, and it's one of the reasons for the guidance, is we do have um, a lower level of generic utilization than we projected at the start of the year. And that can have uh, quite a material impact on both the revenue and on the cost line. So it does, if your generic utilization goes down, it does negatively impact your profitability. That will be one potential tailwind that we will have, I would say, six months from now to 12 months from now because of contract changes in MedD. We would expect our generic utilization rates to increase, thus giving us um, some comfort on around the gross uh, margin outlook. I, I hope that's given you enough perspective. Let me see also. 
we, uh, we have always uh, known and said openly uh, that uh, we uh, uh, expect uh, growing pressure on, uh, on, on margin from uh, 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 and from our contracts with uh, with our customers. Uh, it's up to us to find ways to compensate for this pressure. And um, until now, we have been able to do it. Uh, this quarter, yes, the pressure maybe it's a little higher, but. Uh, uh, the problem is that uh, uh, we uh, have been uh, surprised by the pace of uh, the three events that have contributed to the bad, uh, to the bad results for the quarter and for the year. Uh, and uh, we knew that uh, uh, in any case uh, the trend was in that direction and we were preparing. Uh, if we can react uh, so quickly and uh, now is because uh, we were thinking of all uh, uh, the, uh, the remedies and all the counteractions uh, even uh, before, we have not uh, uh, been probably uh, quick enough in putting uh, those counteractions in place. And now we, found, we find ourselves uh, uh, a, a, little, uh, uh, a little behind. Uh, the uh, pressure that uh, we see in, in the market, but um, we are confident that uh, as we have individuated and we have worked for months to individuate all uh, all these elements, it's uh, uh, we are um, confident that in future we will be able uh, to find the right remedies. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Robert Jones from Goldman Sachs. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Uh, great. Thanks for the questions. I, I guess just to go back to, to the, the issue around reimbursement rate pressure, you know, outside of things like FEP being clearly a, a specific headwind uh, to the year, you know, I, I was always under the impression that, you know, the reimbursement rates coming into the year were something you guys were generally aware of. And so could you maybe just explain the dynamic there that has the rates coming in so much worse than what you anticipated? And then I guess the follow-up question to that would be, you know, are we at a point with the PBMs where you need to take a tougher stance? I mean, obviously there's precedent, you know, for for playing a little harder when it comes to declining reimbursement rates and just not offering, you know, the Walgreens network and certain PBM offerings. Is, is that on the table? Is that kind of where the industry is at, given uh, this persistent reimbursement rate pressure? Hi, hi Bob. It's, it's Alec here. I think there was a, a culmination of the headwinds that, uh, that hit us in Q3, and it hit us through, uh, through Q2, apologies, through, through the quarter. Uh, and I think James covered them off, uh, in, 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 and they were as such. There was, um, it was definitely, uh, you know, genetic deflation was, uh, was reducing. Uh, uh, that has a, an impact, and that happened through the quarter. Uh, branded inflation was reducing. That happened during the quarter. And, of course, uh, the volume, to be honest with you as well, was less than we had expected. Particularly, uh, we had a, a pretty uh, big, a very big uh, 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 flu and cough and cold season uh, last year, and it was early, and this year it's been more normal and a little bit later. So these are all factors that hit us, hit us coming into, into that period. And I think also at the end of the year, we true up with our PBM partners 
uh, the contracts for the year. And we don't really see the effect of that true up really until uh, until uh, middle of February. And that was another factor that happened as well. So it was, it was a combination of headwinds that gave us this uh, unusually high, the highest uh, quarter we've had, as James said, uh, this fiscal year uh, that created uh, this reimbursement pressure. I think in terms of our, our attitude towards our partners in the supply chain, including the PBMs, you know, we have a partnership approach. Uh, we are uh, working with our partners to deliver uh, better, uh, better, better service, better uh, products, including, uh, for example, improving uh, the, the ability for us to reduce costs elsewhere in the healthcare system. Uh, I'll give you one example of that. There's more money uh, than ever before coming on the table for service-based payments, particularly in the Medicare D area. And we, again, are working with partners towards the government to create a, a more common framework of KPIs that pharmacists can aim for in terms of getting repayments, for example, in MedD and DERS. And we worked out very well, in my view, with Optum and, and, uh, and United Health uh, in a very successful Medicare Advantage book of business where, again, we got uh, more payments than ever for performance-based pharmacy. So I think there's, there's a recognition uh, by our partners that pharmacy uh, is under pressure. I think there's a recognition by our partners they want better joined-up care uh, within the healthcare system, and they're encourage, encouraging us uh, through aligning incentives to invest more, as James has said, in these models, and that's what we intend to do. Thanks for that. I guess just the, the quick follow-up. We hadn't spent a lot of time on specialty, and I know that's you know part of the U.S. retail uh, business model. You know, anything worth calling out there? Are you seeing similar uh, headwinds or issues that you've called out, kind of on the core retail pharmacy business uh, on the specialty side as well? It's all again, yeah. I mean, our, our alliance, our ex partnership has been a good one. You've seen the volume we've created and additional sales we've created, and uh, and we, we are happy with the the operational standards and the customer standards. But again, the margin uh, is under pressure. Uh, there's no doubt that uh, uh, the economics of especially business is under pressure as the government uh, is asking questions about how do we get uh, these very important drugs to patients and consumers at lower costs. And we continue to work again with our partners, particularly Prime in this case, and the Blues who own Prime, to really improve that model, uh, both for the owners of the of, the, of Prime and ourselves, but also really important to, to more quickly provide uh, more local service for specialty. In particular, we're opening up lo more local community specialty pharmacies. You know, we believe more and more that the mixed model of central fill and community farms in, 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 you know, based where the local specialty doctors are is a right winning model rather than just a pure central fill model. And we're encouraged by the success of these uh, community pharmacies and by the adoption, particularly by our partners at Prime. Great. Thanks, Alex. Your next question comes from the line of Kevin Caliendo from UBS. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the, the partnerships. You said you're going to have you know, significant increased investments in these partnerships. Can you talk about which ones, and you've highlighted seven or eight different type of partnerships or pilot programs in the last year or so. Can you talk about which ones might be accelerated or which ones might become more of a focus, and can you talk to why that is the case? Yes, Alec here. I mean, I think the, the one that we should speak to the most this morning is definitely Microsoft and the digitalization of our company. That's a really significant uh, contract uh, from our point of view, but also from Microsoft's point of view. 
Uh, and it's also one that lasts over a number of years as we not just digitalize Walgreens, but we digitalize our partnership infrastructure both in, uh, in the retail product side and also importantly create new opportunities for partnerships in healthcare. So that, by some way, uh, is the most important uh, piece of work we're doing. It's where we're investing uh, the most of our money going forward to really create, uh, you know, better tools for engagement for customers across both front end and pharmacy, and better ways for our business partners to engage with our healthcare platform. We're also very pleased with our partnership with Beverly. We're really working pretty hard to bring real innovation quickly to the marketplace. They've developed a number of market-ready tools, for example, on the on-dual uh, diabetes platform, which are, we have already active uh, in our own population, our healthcare beneficiaries here in Walgreens uh, in the USA. And the adoption rate of that tool is very satisfactory so far, and we believe that's another example of bringing new tools to market very quickly with new partnerships. On the retail side, uh, I think we mentioned in our pre-prepared remarks that we're very pleased with uh, the rapid progress from a customer point of view and engagement in the Kroger uh, trials uh, in, in, in Northern, uh, Northern uh, Kentucky and Cincinnati. We're really, we're really very, very pleased with that. And we expect to be able to move that testing trial further forward uh, going, going forward. And of course, uh, that is more focused on creating two things. First of all, convenience in retail uh, between a fantastic uh, grocer and food brand in Kroger and obviously our pharmacy and healthcare and beauty brands here in Walgreens. And secondly, you know, working to share data appropriately so we can personalize the offer for many Americans who rely on these categories every single week and every single day. It's the most sticky categories because it's the ones that are most frequently used. Beyond that, you know, Birchbox is in early stages, but going well. And Sprint, again, we announced uh, the extension to 80 stores of Sprint and last but not least, on the healthcare services side, LabCorp, where we continue to advance our LabCorp partnership with the ambition and the intention, should I say, to drive to 600 locations within the next uh, three and a half years. Can I do a quick follow-up? Uh, and just thinking about this, and the, your, your pricing pressures are coming a lot from partners that you have. You have partnerships basically with all the PBMs in one form or another. Um, is there any place that you can take pricing or you have pricing power with some of your partners? I'm not sure it's the PBM side necessarily, but uh, can you push down on the consumer in any way, shape, or form? Can you push down on your wholesaling relationships any, any, with manufacturers? Can, can you talk a little bit about where you might have some increase or, or some pricing power going forward? Yes, Alki. Again, I don't see it as pricing power. I see it as, as we, as we uh, join up with partnerships who want to drive efficiency across the whole supply chain. So working with partners like Amersos Bergen, uh, working with uh, partners like United Health, we're joining up processes, whether it be marketing processes or whether it be uh, supply chain processes, to drive out costs between us, therefore driving you know, better economics for the marketplace and, of course, better economics for our partners as well. Uh, so that's how we see it. You know, we, 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 take, we, we think our, one of our most compelling strategies is partnership, the philosophy of creating value for each other over the long term uh, in ways that really brings efficiency and better quality of care to the marketplace. And, and we believe in this phase of change in the American healthcare system, for us, we think that's a very compelling part of our strategy. Thanks so much, guys. Your next question comes from the line of Charles Reihe from Cowan. Please go ahead. Your line is open. 
Yeah, thanks. Um, maybe just a follow-up uh, on the partnership question, and particularly as it relates to, uh, Alec, your comment about the, the 600 LabCorp. I mean, is that uh, that decision, at some point, was that an acceleration of your strategy, or is, has it always been sort of that plan? And I guess the question really is, you know, at what point when you look at when these partnerships, they are looking like they're working or they, they will lead to success, you know, um, you know, are, are, are we accelerating any of these more so than others currently? Uh, and when we think about that $300 million investment in the partnerships, is this a larger number than maybe you had initially budgeted for, or has this had been always the number? Uh, just trying to get a sense on, you know, sort of internally if you're seeing uh, greater success than you might have expected, or is this just sort of as in line? No, it's definitely greater, particularly relative to the rest of our cost base. So we have absolutely protected and, uh, and driven more, uh, more of our dollars uh, into accelerating these partnerships. Uh, LabCorp is a good example. We started that off really in the Gainesville area as part of our Gainesville trial, and rapidly we agreed uh, to extend to 600 stores nationwide within four years. And uh, we're having great conversations with the LabCorp team about what more we can do. Secondly, uh, I would say that uh, the, the partnership with uh, Microsoft I mentioned already is a clear acceleration of the digitalization of a company, along with uh, recruiting internally a lot of, uh, particularly a chief digital officer, and there's, there's more people coming in to really, uh, to, really uh, to drive you know, the, the modernization of our platform and processes to become a new retail and healthcare company. That's a very important acceleration in investment. And thirdly, I would say that uh, you know, we're encouraged by Kroger. Again, I go back to the importance of food, the importance uh, of foodfall in our stores, and we recognize that we have a very low market share in food, and we recognize that Kroger uh, is a food expert and a national food expert here in the U.S., and we're encouraged uh, with uh, the money we spent in it early testing trials, and we believe there's more to test and trial for sure before we can be certain of this but we see a reason to move forward uh, faster with Kroger. Yeah, and, um, just, just to clarify, of the $300 million, approximately 60% is on partnerships, the other 40% is on digital initiatives and the digitalization of the company. So think about 40% will actually improve execution in pharmacy, in retail, back office, everywhere, which is the digital investment, and the 60% is specifically on the partnerships. And I think what distinguishes this versus the plans we would have put together 12 months ago would be that the, the plans are fully funded. So we've actually, we're funding ahead of the revenue in the plan because the targets we give, we want to be absolutely sure that we can deliver upon the long-term growth model. And we won't do that if we underfund the future drivers of the business. So it is quite different than a plan we would have done a year ago. It's, it's just much more, I don't want to use the word generous, but they're, 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 it's well-funded in terms of what we need to get done. Well, in partnership, you haven't talked about or you haven't really highlighted is Humana. Uh, just curious how that one is going. Um, I know that Humana themselves had, uh, spoke you know, pretty positively about the, the trends you're seeing. And, and I guess to that extent, when you look at the partnerships and you mentioned Football, Alex, are you able to calculate the uptick in foot traffic that the partnerships bring to you for each of the different partners? I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, clearly, you know, driving more, uh, more patients and customers into our corner store is really important to us, and we can absolutely measure that as part of the, the business cases James mentioned. 
uh, and uh, and that's why I, I mentioned primarily uh, Kroger. Uh, for sure, Human is uh, a good partnership. We're in two uh, partners in primary care. Uh, it's a senior a senior model uh, that's been well put together to to create a complete offer for the senior, including the pharmacist has been part of the morning huddle, for example, with uh, with the, the primary care doctors and uh, the, the nurse practitioners. Uh, and the signs are encouraging. You know, uh, the, the signs are encouraging, as uh, the Humana team said. Uh, and, uh, and, we're, and we're still in the very early stages, a bit like Bird's Box of this trial. But Humana is a very important testing trial for us as we, as we focus more on the, on the senior and more on primary care. Would you see that that replacing sort of more of your, the retail clinics that, you know, maybe several years ago you had kind of embarked on more of a, a retail clinic model? Do you see that this could be more the, the, the go-to model for uh, delivering more of this kind of care in the, in, in the, store, in the store format? Yeah, it's really early days, to be honest, and of course uh, we need to see the return on that money clearly. Uh, but for sure, we know the model in uh, the clinics for us uh, did not did not give us the returns that we expected, and um, we've been working uh, to to re- to improve the profitability and, to be honest, the customer and patient care in these clinics uh, by working closely with healthcare systems across the USA. So we've already altered that model quite a long way, uh, and, uh, and we're very happy with that model. So we think that uh, the full-line primary care, uh, particularly focused on seniors, is a really interesting model, and we see that more of our future than, than, uh, than uh, the, the episodic clinics, uh, you know, the retail clinics that we had before. Great. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Michael Turney from Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Uh, good morning, and thanks for all the colors so far. Um, there was a comment made about generic utilization being lighter than expected. Um, you know, as we think about all of the moving pieces in terms of script growth versus the reimbursement pressures, any sense as to why that was the case, and what does it portend in terms of your expectations for script growth going forward, particularly since you do have a look at how some of the preferred networks and, and Part D networks have performed so far year to date? So, yeah, so I think, uh, Mike, uh, it was simply due to the fact that we, we, uh, we lost a major book of business. Uh, the Aetna book of business went from preferred to non-preferred uh, 12 months ago. So on 1119, uh, we anniversaried that loss of book of business. And we've been satisfied uh, with uh, the growth of our MedD business from that date. So we anniversaried that out. And we've, I say we've grown very nicely with United. Uh, we became preferred with Cigna. Uh, and therefore, we are happy that we're now back to you know good solid market-based market growth uh, with MedD uh, and seniors because seniors are usually on more more medication and usually more genetic medication. We're seeing genetic utilisation uh, start to rise, and that's what we've planned going forward, as James said in his in his uh, answer to another question. So um, uh, I think that's the reason for it. And again, I think we're satisfied that we're now back to uh, our normal growth market growth in MedD. And then just one other quick question. You talked about um, uh, about $700 million or so, give or take, on buyback for the rest of the year after doing $3.1 billion in the first half of the year. Any thought process behind some of the rationale for that change, and when are you able to start to buy back shares again? Um, well, we can start buying back shares in the next couple of days. And um, we, we, as we said, we currently project to repurchase 3.8 billion this year. And just as a planning stance for the next three years, 
we didn't want our guidance to be over-reliant on share repurchases, so we've built in $1.7 billion each year. So as you look to the next three years, around 2.5 percentage points of growth comes from uh, buybacks, with some offset coming from a tax rate that's turning negative. So as we look to mid-single digit, if you call that kind of like a 6 to 8%, we see the core business growing at three and a half to five point five and a half five and a half percent, excluding the use of uh, cash for um, capital allocation. So, um, you know, the, the remainder of this year is just to get back be in the market on a particularly con um, um, a particularly constant basis. Um, hope that covers your question. Uh, no, thanks. Your next question comes from the line of Ann Hines from Mizuho Securities. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Hi, good morning. I know you addressed um, cash flow on the call, but it did seem very weak, even if you X some of the Rite Aid benefits last year. Can you give any type of cash flow guidance for fiscal 19? Um, and then secondly, I'm not sure if, you know, recent results change your view on M&A going forward. I know you've been focused more on the strategies. But um, does this change your view on capital deployment going forward? Thanks. Yeah. Um, you know, on, on cash flow, yeah, we had, a, we had a pretty rocky quarter. And we, we've got a, not surprises, but we have a couple of headwinds that we will face this year. So if you step back from this and look back over the last couple of years, this is a business that can deliver pretty comfortably somewhere in the region of five, five and a half to six billion of cash flow, depending on the year. Now, as you as you compare one year to another, you always have um, you're always lapping something or some of some sorts. This year, we have about 2.3 billion of headwinds. So I think as you think through a normal level of um, of cash flow, which is somewhere north of 5 billion, we have to um, we have to manage through uh, cash taxes this year, which are 900 million higher um, than in the previous year. We're we're cycling through legal payouts of 300 million. And then we have large move, movements as a result of Rite Aid, almost a billion dollars. So the cash flow this year will be um, well below the trend rate. But we have developed a, a, a three-year plan in some support of our, our guidance, and we're quite comfortable on the long-term cash flow generating power of the company. And, and actually quite I would even go so far as saying as I think when you look at some of our payment terms with suppliers and some of the way we manage inventory, we probably have large doses of opportunity. And then the final comment on cash flow, as you look at this year, our, our cash, expen cash capital expenditures are exceptionally high. They're about three or 400 million higher than a run rate. And that's essentially the conversion of the Rite Aid stores. So it's, it's quite a huge exercise because we're, we, you know, we took on 1,900 stores. Um, you know, as you saw from Alec, we are raising the store closures to 750, um, but that still leaves the conversion of 1,200 stores. And, um, you know, by the way, the, the Rite Aid acquisition has gone extremely well. Um, the return on investment is just exactly where we wanted it to be. Um, we're getting there in a different way, and actually we're very encouraged by the retention we're getting as we op optimize the stores. So, you know, cash flow this year will be somewhat problematic, but we're quite confident on the future outlook. 
Could you see a normalized level in fiscal 2020? Sorry? Could you see that normalized level in 2020? Yeah, I think we will, we will, we will uh, definitely plan to be at a normalized level in 2020. Um, we have enough um, initiatives lined up against the cash flow targets. Um, we have um, strong capital efficiency programs um, ongoing, so we're, we're, we're quite comfortable on, on, the, on that kind of getting back to that level quite um, quickly. Okay, and just on my M&A question. What the M&A? What? Uh, yeah, I, I wasn't sure if the recent results and the deteriorating backdrop of the retail pharmacy industry would change your views on M&A going forward. No, our view is uh, still the same. Uh, we are not uh, close uh, uh, to any deal provided uh, the uh, the price is right. Uh, we don't see any reason uh, to use uh, our cash overpaying uh, for something. Uh, just because uh, uh, there is a deterioration of the market. If, any, if anything, we have to be more careful when we buy something because we are, if we don't believe uh, that the market uh, uh, will, uh, will turn around, uh, we, uh, we have to, uh, to uh, action more carefully. Honestly, we still believe in this market. We still believe that this market is a market for the future, a big market with continuous growth. But to buy something, we must be sure that the money that we employ will come back sooner or later. Okay, great. Thank you. Kirsten, we, we do have some more time, so um, we'll take a couple more questions if we could. Certainly. Your next question comes from the line of Aaron Wright from Credit Suisse. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Great. Thank you. Um, can you remind us of your strategy in specialty pharmacy? Is, there an, is this an area where you could build out further um, in terms of your capabilities there, um, as well as uh, I think you updated us on the Prime and Express relationship. But also, do you think you're competitively positioned in specialty? Thanks. Yeah, so hi, hi, and it's Alec here. Uh, and I think, uh, as I said before, we're, we're investing in community pharmacies in particular. These are ones which are very close to the specialist doctors and often also very close to hospitals where specialist doctors uh, operate. And that's going really well for us. And we're also investing in our relationships, uh, you know, with Alliance RX. And, uh, and of course, we've set up, a, I know, a, a, buying, uh, a, buying, a buying group uh, effectively with Express Scripts. So we're very active in this space. We know it's 50% of the market going forward. We know this is where the innovation is coming from our pharmaceutical partners, and we continue to work with them on potential new models of how you can actually take the, 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 the drugs more precisely and more directly to these patients who require these narrower, very, very important drugs and those more personalized drugs. So we're working on all fronts. It's a really important thing for us, and we're investing what we think in the future of this model and I go back to, again, we think the central fill here is important, but it's not the only way that you can bring uh, these products and these very important uh, drugs to the marketplace. Okay, thanks. And leveraging your LabCorp relationship, what more could you potentially do there, um, potentially on their contract research side with clinical trials, and what sort of extensions do you contemplate with that LabCorp relationship? Thanks. 
I mean, obviously, uh, our relationship with uh, LabCorp is, is really strong, and uh, and also we built uh, in Walgreens Boots Alliance uh, in our in our in our development function uh, what we call Fine Care, uh, which really is a, a platform for being able to uh, uh, you know attract engage customers in their own healthcare, both episodic and long term chronic conditions, and we've launched an, I launched a number of different solutions there. So we think that the the platform of um, of the pharmacies uh, with, with, uh, with, with LabCorp, along with the digital platforms we're building, uh, will give manufacturers a lot of new opportunity to engage with us in different ways. And one of the ways they can engage with us is speeding up uh, their really important innovations uh, to the marketplace. You know, the wholesale business under analogy leadership has fantastic relationships globally uh, with the biggest manufacturers across the world. And you can be sure that we are in conversation to try and join up how do we bring the right patients at every stage of the development of these drugs uh, to our partners in the marketplace so we can speed up delivery of new innovations and reduce costs in healthcare? That's great. Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Lisa Gill from J.P. Morgan. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Thanks very much. Uh, I had a couple of follow-up questions. First would be around on the um, technology side. So, James, you talked about being able to cut some technology costs, but as we think about the potential changes with this rebate rule, it potentially could put it in the hands of the retailers to now have to do point of sale and then figure out a chargeback, et cetera. Do you feel like you have the systems you need today, or would there be incremental investments that you would have to make um, if we actually see what is proposed come about? Um, I'll take a shot and maybe pass it over to Alec. Um, we think, yes, we, we need incremental investments. That's why we mentioned this 300 a year, 40% uh, would go on digital. Um, we have two large programs going on in the U.S. right now. One is retail finance transformation, which effectively is the front of store plus all the back office. And the program is going well and would be complete in 20 and 2020. And then what we call RX Renewal, which is uh, a renewal of all of the pharmacy systems, and that's a longer program that's much more um, integrated with the digital journey we're on, and that will take a number of years. These are fully funded in any guidance we're giving, and they are quite transformational in terms of the way the company will operate, and we will obviously leverage them to reduce cost to fill across the company. Um, back office, but equally so to engage more deeply with the consumer at front of store and with patients as they come into the pharmacy. So it's a, it's like a win-win um, across the entire um, company. At least it's Alec here. Yeah, I'm specifically looking at how do we get a, you know, how do we get a transparency at the point of care? Uh, you know, both uh, both uh, the the doctor's office and also the pharmacy, and to have that as a more open network. Uh, and our work, you know, as you remember early on, we did some work uh, with was formed the calls uh, now with Bosch on creating a new model, a direct-to-pharmacy a direct pharmacy model for uh, cash payment. So again, we've, we've, been, we've been working this, uh, uh, this opportunity for three years now, I think it is, and we remain convinced that these models will be very important to the future as more demands are placed on price visibility and more patients are paying for more and more out-of-pocket for the drugs. 
great. And then my second follow-up would just be um, around the comments on, on the acquisition strategy. Clearly, a lot of questions today around your partnerships and what you have in the marketplace. Um, you haven't made an acquisition in the last few years since Rite Aid. Uh, we know that it's a tough reimbursement environment on the retail side, but um, if you or, or Stefano can talk about what, what are the things that, that you target, and, and I know, Stefano, you made the comment that, you know, you have to pay the right price, but there's been talk historically about what it makes sense for you to buy the rest of Amerisource. Um, you know, are there ways that you want to build the relationship in the healthcare neighborhood, right? So is it, what are the kinds of things that you're thinking about that would accelerate that strategy from an M&A perspective? Well, I have to tell you, uh, I can uh, just give the same answer that I have given uh, in the past. We are open uh, uh, to any kind of partnership which makes sense, uh, which is uh, compatible with what we are doing, uh, provided that the price is correct and provided that uh, uh, the, uh, the organization of the company that, uh, that uh, we buy or uh, that we uh, merge with, uh, is compatible with us because uh, price is very important, but also the, uh, if you don't have uh, a compatible teams at the end, the merger will not work and you will not be able to deliver synergies. Uh, we, uh, we are constantly reviewing uh, a certain number of companies. Don't ask me the names. I cannot give you the names. Uh, but... Uh, 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 but of course, until now we have not found the uh, uh, the right uh, uh, the right numbers uh, uh, to do a combination with these companies. And, and is that right number more of an absolute number, or does it have to do with where your stock is currently trading? Because I think that as we look at this, could you potentially make an acquisition to be able to enhance your offering or to diversify from some of the issues we see in the marketplace today. Yeah, but uh, uh, the uh, the uh, the share uh, the share, our share price uh, is relative. It depends on the share price of the target. If we have more or less the same multiple, the share price is not a problem. If we have a very different multiple, the share price can be can be a problem. Uh, but we still have uh, a, a certain uh, possibility, a certain room for additional. Uh, uh, for additional uh, um, uh, depth. So uh, some acquisition could uh, be done mainly uh, financing them uh, through cash. But I repeat, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not the absolute value of our shares which counts, it's the relative value. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Your next question comes from the line of Ross Mukin from Evercore ISI. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Uh, good morning, guys. So uh, two things. So one, um, you know, as we think about sort of in the rest of retail, um, a lot of the sort of fears that, that existed and, and what companies ultimately have done, and I'm thinking about Walmart and Home Depot and some of the more traditional guys, you know, they've basically pursued one in a sort of omni-channel approach, and I think you guys have talked a lot about technology and investment today, but two, there's just been, in, in general, a, a big downsizing of boxes in a lot of different areas um, and sort of a consolidation of the industry. That's the one thing that's sort of lacking here. Obviously, you guys are closing more stores than what we saw in the past, 
but how do you think about sort of the state of, of pharmacy and the competitive landscape? Because if we think about what's driving possibly some of the reimbursement pressure outside of lower brands, some of it is still the fact that we're, we're overboxed uh, across the U.S. maybe by a substantial amount. And so how do you think about that in the context of kind of what you can control and what you can't control and how you expect you know, some of the smaller peers, I guess, to sort of play out over the next couple, you know, couple of years. I know it's all key. Yeah, we 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 really believe in uh, our strategies based on our stores, but our stores have had a one-size-fits-all uh, mindset, you know, since uh, since the the, the Walgreens strategy was created in the U, U.S. in particular. So we are reformatting and reshaping our stores to against the priorities that we spoke about earlier on. Uh, and secondly, we have a strategy in retail to become, you know, uh, even stronger in pharmacy, uh, to really strengthen our healthcare products and services and solutions, and also uh, in continue to drive our beauty differentiation in the marketplace, while partnering with others to take care of other categories. Uh, and lastly, but not least, you know, we have 80, 85 million loyalty card holders. And we believe that data analytics uh, are really important to understand how you personalize the offer as a pharmacy-led health and beauty specialist and how you work with others to create you know, real personalization and marketing. So that's our strategy. We think our stores are a strength. We have to reorganize them and uh, reshape them over the next uh, you know, five to ten years, and, that, and we're, we're on the journey to do that. Thanks. And just maybe uh, just going back to the guidance again, um, you know, particularly on sort of the, the multi-year basis, I guess, you know, coming off of obviously what's a very disappointing period is you tried to sort of ring fence some of these risks, particularly around reimbursement and, and just pricing, and then incorporated your view on, again, some of the policy changes. I guess, how did you sort of build confidence that, you know, mid to high singles was sort of the correct range and, and sort of the correct goal and that with what you can do, obviously, on the cost side, you'd be able to get there and, and, and thinking about that, particularly in the context of just underlying operating income growth, which obviously this year is pretty challenged and, and you know, we've still got some uncertainty possibly in the back half. Yeah. Um, so maybe let me cover first the back half and then I'll move on to the three year. Um, you know, as you, as you look through the back half, we did say that the, the peak in, in the issue on gross margins in pharmacy is in Q2. We do expect some continuation into Q3 and then an improvement in Q4. So as you plot out your quarters, I would assume, you know, a fairly even split in the EPS between the two quarters, maybe 49, 51. Um, so Q3 will be worse and, and Q4 will be improving. Um, we actually, we set ourselves a different goal when we pulled together. And it's not really guidance, it's a growth model. And we sat back and we went through very, very detailed reviews with each of the business leaders. Um, and here is the goal we set ourselves. We wanted to set a realistic goal, mid to high um, single digit. We spent a lot of time on the levers to offset reimbursement, um, particularly on the assumptions around generic deflation and the ability of our um, generic purchasing organization to deliver significant offsets. And we're comfortable that the generic team can offset approximately 50 to 60% of the reimbursement impact. Then we went through each single volume assumption, um, particularly pharmacy, but also in the retail business. And I really don't want it to be lost on the audience, the changes we're making in retail. Um, and one is 
this business went from a loss-making business three years ago to a, quite a profitable retail business now. So we are from a from a starting point, it's a position of strength, but with a weak top line um, um, delivery. And, and the big change will be we will distort and refocus our resources on health and wellness and beauty. And that's where we can win, and we know we can win, and they're very attractive businesses. And then we will build partnerships with companies like Kroger to address the other parts of retail. And we're very convinced that we have line of sight to improving top line. The second part is we said, can we, let's put in what we can control, and you can control your cost journey. And we've built in 1.5 billion. We've put um, a strong governance around it, and we'll be resolute in delivering, and I emphasize, at least 1.5 billion of cost reduction. So that has a high degree of um, probability. And then the final thing, which we said at the beginning was, um, it's no, you, you can't cut yourself to glory. So we built in the investments required to drive the top line. So we have the right investments, 300 million a year, which, you know, it adds up to a billion dollars of investments behind partnerships and uh, digital. So we're investing to make sure, especially that the U.S. business has the <coughs> ammunition required to create that omnichannel experience in both pharmacy and in retail so that we do get the volume delivery that creates the virtuous cycle. And that's the reason why we, we are actually quite confident that the growth model for the three years is, is, is founded in a lot of fact. And actually, it's quite a detailed plan we, we develop, developed internally. And that, the, the question we got earlier, does it translate to cash? And the answer is yes. We see a, a line of sight in, um, in consistently delivering that $5 billion type range um, that we've done in the past. We see no reason why the business can't do something similar. Um, into the future. And, you know, I said what Stefano said at the past, we're very disappointed with the quarter and the requirement to take down guidance, and it's made us resolute that we've put in place very tangible plans to make sure we don't have to do that again. And, and you know, that's the commitment from the management team. Thank you, and uh, I'm afraid we are now out of time. That was a good place to end. Um, so. Uh, we obviously, I know a lot of you didn't get to ask questions on the call. Um, the IR team are here and available for um, the rest of the week to answer any questions you may have. Um, and we will um, look forward to speaking to you again next quarter. Thank you very much indeed. Kirsten, would you like to close the call? And this concludes today's conference call. Thank you for your participation, and you may now disconnect. Have a great day.